Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 128. I wanted to uh, kick things off with uh, a quick thank you to everybody that voted for us in the podcast awards. We did not win, but that's okay, because they happened on the same day that The Babadook was released on Blu-ray, so everything worked out well for me. Um, but uh, And congratulations to The Scathing Atheist on uh, on his win. Um and frankly, you know, we don't actually have that many listeners, and so it is definitely a, a numbers game. But you know what? So many people on Facebook and Twitter said, I voted, and it really uh, means a lot to me that people would support the show in that way. Um, and then I wanted to also thank everybody for uh, purchasing uh, our bonus episode, which, by the way, is perpetually available. You can buy it whenever you want, and it is about Kevin Smith's dogma. It is $2.50. Uh, we're very proud of the episode. It's about 90 minutes long, and um, and so that will be available at morethanonelesson.com. But, uh, and then along with the people that bought it, I also want to, uh, say thank you to those that donated to the show to help send me to the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando. I will be going there next week. Uh, I'm very excited. It's gonna be three days long. I'm, more than one lesson is gonna have a table there. We're gonna have, you know, postcards, uh, trivia questions. We'll be selling, uh, some of Josh's films. And so hopefully there will be a number of ways to, uh, engage with people that walk up. And more than anything, um, you know, when I started the show, one of the things that I uh, rather loftily and maybe even haughtily um, wanted to accomplish was getting Christians more comfortable with the idea of film um, as an art form, certainly, but also as a way to engage with God. And, you know, what the the implicit um, idea there is that there are a number of Christians that are not comfortable with film as an art form, and so that's when you get movies like Fireproof, like God's Not Dead, movies that you know, as we've said on the show before, are not very good. But um, so I thought uh, with this Orlando thing that I'd go straight to the source and talk to these people and. And, and I hate saying these people because it implies they're somehow different than we are. I have no doubt that they are intelligent Christians that take their faith seriously. Um, and there are plenty of people, Christian or not, that do not take film as an art form. And, uh, and I do not, and I think it's very important for myself and, and for our listeners and, and, uh, everybody who love, that are Christians and love film that we're not better than these, than, than people that don't love movies like we do or can't talk about movies like we do. Uh, but we do want to kind of open up this avenue so that they have yet another way to hear from God the way that, that I do when I watch a movie like Pulp Fiction, for example, um, and any number of the other movies that we've talked about on the show. So, you know, again, that's all very lofty, and it remains to be seen if it's possible to happen in three days, but I'm going very much to the audience that this show was uh, originally intended for, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So, uh, listeners, if you want, uh, feel free to pray for me and pray for this endeavor, uh, along with being, you know, um, for lack of a better term, mission-minded. I think it will also be a lot of fun to have these types of conversations with people and to talk about more than one lesson to a, a Christian audience. So, uh, yeah, so that's the situation. I'm very excited, and... I think that is as far as it goes, as far as announcements, that is not true. All right, everybody, here's the deal. 
Uh, I'll go ahead and bring him in now. Josh, my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. Not bad. So, uh, Josh has a lot of work coming. He's going to be out of town. He's going to be in the nice, dry, airy climate of Texas Oof. in May and June, and fo- followed shortly by North Carolina in June. Um, he's going there willingly, although admittedly he's being paid to be there. <laughs> That's true. Which uh, is maybe the only way I would go to Texas in June, although that didn't stop me when I was a kid from going to uh, El Paso and Juarez in July, I think. on yeah. mission. But that's a mission trip, so it's supposed to be horrible. Yeah. Also, not all of Texas is, well, you know, it's huge, so not all of it is as humid as Austin is, but that's yeah. where I'm going to be, so. Texas is I guess so Houston big. Houston is even worse, probably. Houston? I think Houston's really humid. I mean, El Paso is basically, it's, it's on the border of Mexico. That's pretty far south. It was horrendous. <laughs> I, I really hated it. Um, by the way, I was about to make an Armageddon reference when you talked about how big Texas was. I'm like, I mean, it's not so big. It's half the size of that meteor. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Josh is going to be, um, out of town for a while, um, He'll he'll be here for next week's episode uh, because we've already recorded it. So uh, what I just said was a lie. He won't necessarily be here, but you'll hear him. Um, it'll be like I'm there. It'll be like he's there. there. He'll be right home, there in, in your, your car, ears. in your yeah. ears, in your head. In, <laughs> You're like your Hannibal head. Lecter. You don't want to let Josh <laughs> inside your head. It's bad news. Although it'll still be pretty quiet. <laughs> you'll be left to your own thoughts quite a bit. And then every once in a while, you'll be like, hey, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> you guys like Gilligan's Island? <laughs> Um, but, uh, so for the month of May and for a good portion of June, and by the way, uh, okay, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I keep coming up with caveats. So for the month of May and into June, uh, I'll be doing the show with, uh, some guest hosts right now. Uh, Reed Lackey is on the, is on the schedule as is Robert Hornack. Uh, Josh and I are going to record a couple of minisodes in advance so you will still hear josh throughout uh throughout may and june um but not on the episode proper and uh i guess now is the time to bring up this announcement i was hoping we'd have one more week before we do that um so there is going to be sort of in this and like it's appropriate that it's happening now because this is a good example of why um, there's going to be uh, a restructuring of more than one lesson, um, where, uh, Josh is no longer going to be my primary co-host. Um, he will still be here for the minisodes for as long as we're talking about the best pictures. So he'll be here for a while. <laughs> Another 10 years. Yeah. Um, and anytime there's a new best picture, he'll, he'll be right, right back. Gotta pop in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for scheduling reasons, uh, we've decided instead to um, have Josh instead be one of a ro- rotating list of co-hosts. And that list will, in fact, be Josh, Reed, and Robert. Um, and I, I feel like both Reed and Robert will plug in pretty easily. They've been my guest hosts in the past, and I think that both of them bring a very specific sensibility. Uh, and so I feel like all three of them, again, will bring their own sensibility to it and add to the conversation. I think I think it'll be really good for the show. It takes a lot of this, uh, a lot of the pressure off of Josh. Um, and uh, yeah, so I know that that's not at, at this point. You know, Josh has been hosting 
co-hosting for um, coming up on four years, I believe, just shy. Um, it was right after you got married in 2011. Okay, yeah. So, so. I think it was like August or September. So mm-hmm. it's been it, it's coming up, mm-hmm. and so um, you know. And again, while I, I thought I would have another week before having to say this, but here we are. Um, so I, I was going to write things out, and then today I realized, oh, schedule is cut a little short. Um, and Josh, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, so just, you know, pull your hat over your eyes. Oh, no, you can't. It's backwards. <laughs> so, I can still do that. Theater of the mind. I can do this. There we go. Well, now you look like Daredevil on uh, in, in Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. That's true. Good show, by the way. I actually think you would like it quite really? a bit. Um, I heard Doug Jones is going to be on it soon. Or no, wait. You're thinking of the no, Flash. Arrow. Or Arrow. You're thinking think of Arrow. Arrow. Yeah. They're all basically the same. Although Daredevil feels, feels much more like a general crime show than a superhero show. Hmm. And Vincent D'Onofrio as the kingpin is marvelous is that like the big the main villain is the big bad yes oh, cool. and he's great uh if the if the emmys are paying any attention he should definitely get a supporting actor nomination uh, is it is it it's like netflix the studio is, the network yes okay that's yes. cool uh anyway that's neither here nor there that's me uh deflecting before i have to say all this uh so yes jo- uh, josh has been associated with the show for uh four years the show has become infinitely better in my opinion with his being a part of it uh, and while, you know, it's not like he's going away forever, it's just the show is changing. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it's been, it's been, uh, really wonderful watching the dynamic of the show change as a function of having a co-host. And as I've said before, I think on the show and certainly, uh, one-on-one, this was never Josh's ambition in life to be a pot. It's nobody's ambition <laughs> except maybe Rob Sesternino who uh, sweeps every year uh, the podcast awards. Not that that matters. Uh, I really don't care. I genuinely don't. Uh, don't let my constant bringing up uh, of the podcast <laughs> awards throw you. Um, but uh, yeah, this was not his ambition. He has no, you know, he doesn't want to be a film critic. He wants to be a filmmaker. And uh, yet that has never deterred him from, uh, coming back week after week. And so, um, so yes, Josh, thank you very much for being a part of the show in that capacity. And of course, mm-hmm. as I said, you will still be, you will still continue to be a part of it. And, uh, I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners do as well. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Now that that's done, <laughs> let's jump into, uh, a, a film that is almost a horror movie to me. <laughs> um, now that we're talking about, Hey, relationships, um, so today we are talking about David Fincher's Gone Girl. Feel good movie of the year. Boy, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> so you and I actually saw this together. Um, and, and I remember as we were walking out, we were talking about it, but we weren't talking much about it, I think because it's the kind of movie that sort of flattens you, or at least it flattened me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, as we were driving home, I, I think you said, you know, so what did you think? And I said something to the effect of, uh, of oh, it was really good, but I think it might have ruined my weekend. <laughs> um, because there's a lot going on in this film thematically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm somebody who I, be, I can get very emotionally invested uh, in the movies that I watch, especially if they're good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how movies certainly movies will try to connect you with you on an intellectual level, but I think maybe even first and foremost, an emotional level. Mm -hmm. And while I would never describe David Fincher films as emotional, uh, this one is a little bit more 
uh, that because it's about a relationship, specifically mm-hmm. a romantic relationship. Yeah. And because there's a twisty nature to it, it's kind of jerking you around back and forth. And uh, that will immediately affect your emotions. And so I walked out of this film just really drained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of the emotions that were engaged are emotions that one could say are negative. Of course, sadness is not an inherently negative emotion, nor is anger or frustration. Like, those are perfectly reasonable things to feel. But when a movie engages all of them... uh you know, it will leave me a bit wrung out. Mm, yeah. So as a result, I felt like while I thought it was a movie that we would be talking about on the show, uh, I felt like, um, I felt like I would need a lot of emotional preparation before going into it. And, uh, it turns out I was correct mm. because as I was even just preparing notes for this episode, I mean, you know, I started thinking about any number of my relationships, not merely my marriage, although there is that as well. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, uh, but also, you know, relationships with friends, my relationship with you, which, of course, as I as I, we mentioned a moment ago, uh, that's changing as far as the show goes. And it just caused me to just I really went inward and got really not depressed, but I got a bit paranoid. I'll say that. Um because this is a film that will make you a little paranoid I mean, and not yeah. trust your relationship. I feel like depression and paranoia are uh, are things that this film really wants you to feel. <laughs> yeah, and it's and so uh so yeah, uh, I'm I'm trying to rally now that it's time to actually record about this thing. <laughs> uh part of me thought like maybe I should watch it again. And then I thought I don't think I can. I think that might make it worse. I think you can maybe watch this movie once every I'm going to say 18 months. <laughs> and we're within that window, so I couldn't watch it again. Um which by the way is a thing. I don't think we've have we ever talked about a David Fincher film on this show? I don't really have. I mean, we've talked about, like, we talked about Seven as the companion film for No Country for Old yeah. Men. Uh, we might have, t- oh, I, I did talk about The Social Network with uh, Barlow Jacobs all those years oh, ago. Okay. You weren't on the show yet. Okay. Um, that makes sense, yeah. And so... Uh, have you ever talked about Zodiac even as, like, a either when I wasn't here or as a companion film? Not yet. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's, uh, David Fincher is an odd filmmaker, and he mm-hmm. will tend to make movies that I find very draining. And I'm sure I said that with Seven, that I saw it when I... <laughs> I saw it when it was in theaters, so I was probably 12 or 13. (laughs) I think maybe I can trace most of my emotional problems to that. (laughs) Um, Thanks, older brother. Um, Although, even then, I was like, this is pretty amazing. And I have no doubt that seeing some things uh, earlier than I should have probably shaped my my, uh, sensibilities as a film goer. And uh, I will say that, you know, in regards to a movie like Seven... um, it really, I've only seen it twice in my life, once at that time, and then again, as I, uh, several years later, and I think by that time I was dating Jen, and it is a film that will definitely have an impact on you when there's somebody uh, in your life that you love. And so, uh, I will say that uh, Fincher is a, it's so interesting, there's such a lack of sentimentality to him. Mm-hmm. That I think his films are often very draining. I don't think he's a filmmaker that you can watch casually or passively, even when he's making movies that have a pulp quality to them. And when you look at his filmography, a number of them do. Even something like Alien 3, 
Um, and frankly, even stuff like uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. He brings... It's interesting. The way he makes movies gives them a weight that another filmmaker... If if somebody else made Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it would have felt what like what it was always meant to be, which is or not meant to be. Sorry, it would it would feel like what would be a little easier, which is okay. This is just a pulp thing based on a popular novel, and that's mm-hmm. the end. Um, but the choices that he makes and the way that he uses actors, for example, you know, like Rooney Mara was nominated for an Oscar for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, Rosamund Pike was nominated for best actress for um for gone girl Girl. and which frankly is a very pulp type movie in and of itself and so Mm -hmm. uh he's a he's a filmmaker that i think as time has gone on and i think this is a good thing because certainly for people of our generation he's the guy that directed fight club yeah that's that's kind of all that he was known for for a while but i think now that uh now that a lot of these other movies have come out he's become a perennial appear he appears perennially at the Oscars and everything. I think people think of him more as an auteur filmmaker and just a filmmaker to be taken seriously in general. And I know that for, for moviegoers, not unlike I'd say a Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers or a Paul Thomas Anderson, he is a filmmaker of a very specific generation that for certainly for some moviegoers, they always know when his next film is coming out because it is something of an event. Not mm-hmm. in the sense that he does, you know, at this point he's making them pretty consistently. He yeah. had, he had, I believe, uh, like a five year gap in between Panic Room and Zodiac. And I think that's the longest gap he's ever had. And then after Zodiac, it was three years to Social Network. And then I think, I think maybe even one or two years between that and girl with the dragon tattoo. And then you've got gone girl. So he's making, he's cranking them out pretty consistently now. Yeah. And I and think some house of cards in between there somewhere. That's yeah. And then he created a, a, a TV show that, um, sorry, he co-created and then directed, uh, a TV show that, uh, that certainly has a lot of his sensibility, yeah. certainly emotionally. Um, and so, uh, He's a filmmaker that I do find kind of exciting, and it's odd because I actually wasn't a huge fan of Fight Club. I was at the time, mm-hmm. and then I uh, turned nineteen. <laughs> um, that's mean of me. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, but I also think he matured as a filmmaker mm-hmm. because for a long time, you, you know, you'd look at Alien Three, and then Seven, and The Game, and Fight Club, and Panic Room, and you think, okay, this is all from a guy who is so focused on an aesthetic quality and he still is, but a very specific aesthetic quality, making things look particularly ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a memory of, uh, Pat Oswalt talking about in a, in a standup bit in, on his first album, which I believe came out in 2004. Um, and he was, and he was talking about, um, a commercial he was watching and he said that it took place in a David Fincher esque kitchen and at the, certainly at the time, you knew exactly what he mm. meant. Uh, a light bulb was probably blinking about to go out. <laughs> you greenish know, just tint. Greenish tint, dilapidated. Uh, but as time has gone on, and certainly he's not opposed to, you know, stuff like in Gone Girl and uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Um, you know, a, a bluish tint and stuff like that. Uh, <clears throat> I feel like he has, you know, when you watch stuff like Zodiac and even The Social Network, even though he is definitely one to shoot most comfort comfortably um in the darkness 
I think his visual aesthetic has, has grown mm-hmm. and I think he maybe just matured as a filmmaker and as a person and is more willing to, uh, I don't know, to maybe not telegraph his themes so expressively. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd say his films used to be expressionistic, but not far mm-hmm. off. Well, yeah. And I think, I feel like he's moved a lot more towards internalizing everything mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, in, in the performances, at least you, you don't see as much of, uh, big stuff on the outside. It's, it's a lot about the, the psychological tension, which I think has always, always been there, but with something like fight club, the psychological tension is literally on the outside. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not the subtext. It's just the text. So, um, but I think that he's he's moving more towards stories that deal with uh, with what's under the surface, deal with deal with psychological things like that, and um, even I think I kind of like where he's gone in having sort of a cleaner look to everything that he does. Which yeah, I, th- I think it's the same impulse. I think it's the impulse to have everything below the surface. You're not showing a kitchen where everything looks dirty and broken down. Yeah, you're showing a, a kitchen that's uncomfortably spotless, like in Gone yeah. Girl. Yeah, and uh, and you know that hidden there is something terrible quite literally in the case of gone girl yeah it's uh it is so interesting that he went from one i'm reluctant to use the word extreme but yes from one extreme to another that like things are just so the the frame is so junked up with things that it just makes you uncomfortable but then when things are you know sterile and in and look in such look in such a way that like none of us live like that either. And mm-hmm. you start to be like, Oh, something's not correct. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love so much about social network is I think it's, uh, it takes all the sensibilities of that type of thing in a world that is, or in a story that is really only about, uh, business and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the people and how that affects them. Yeah. But there's no, there's no pulp elements to something like social network. Right. And really what, so, okay, I will say I think Zodiac might be one of the best movies of all time. I think it is an absolute masterpiece. I think it is one of three or four masterpieces made that year, um, along with No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, and quite possibly Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so Zodiac – and I'm sorry that we're talking about so many other David Fincher films, but it, frankly at this point, like anytime you see one of his movies, you immediately – and I think this is the mark of like an auteur – you immediately work to – see where it fits in with yeah. the rest of his you, you look at it in context with his other films yeah and um and so zodiac is a film that could have been pulpy i mean it's a you know it's a yeah it's unsolved a serial killer it's serial a, killer unsolved. mystery it was the 1970s you got people with giant knots in their tie <laughs> um and sideburns like it's And yet that is maybe the least pulpy film he's made. Mm. And I think maybe because he recognized this is a true story and I have a responsibility. And that that goes to what I was saying about an adult sensibility. I think he recognizes, like, I have a responsibility to the people that endured this, whether they be direct victims or just the people obsessed with catching this person. I have a responsibility to them to show things how they were as close, you know, while still making certain visual choices like I can't have this feel like seven i can't have it feel like the game because then you know viewers would be like oh that movie's awesome when in fact it should be tragic and uncomfortable and certainly is that um so yeah it's 
and I will say, and certainly this, and I think maybe with this we'll move into uh, Gone Girl. Um, and we've already actually, in talking about his past films, we're already talking a lot about uh, the stuff that you know the choices he made in Gone Girl. Um, the uh, he's not. He's not a happy filmmaker. As a person, he might be perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. But he seems very interested, you know, in the same way that, like, you know, I never met Ingmar Bergman. You you know a lot more about him than I do. As a person, he might be happy-go-lucky, <laughs> you know? But his film, with his films, he's exploring things that he questions. And in doing so, his films are remarkably serious. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't say self-serious. That's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But I think his films are, are a very sincere and deep exploration of maybe his frustration with certain concepts. And I Mm -hmm. think David Fincher is probably the same way in that regard that I think he looks at, you know, the things that we all, the world, I hate to put this, I won't say the world we live in, the lives that we live, even so far as, Oh, we use Facebook and Mm -hmm. Twitter or whatever, like the things, uh, the certainly the things that are now modern conveniences and that most of us use, um, have a story behind them. And the story is probably not, not probably, there's always the chance that it is not remarkably pleasant and that, mm-hmm. uh, that good things can come out of horrible things. And when you look at like all the drama in the social network, all to deliver, you know, Facebook to us. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, I'm not one to say that social networking is, is horrible because it has actually allowed me to connect with people that I never would have otherwise. And so it's a, it's a really great thing for some, mm-hmm. But uh, but that it has all this sordid history behind it. Yeah. And I think that's a thing that he finds interesting. Yeah. Is what, not unlike David Lynch. Yeah. In a lot say. of ways. Uh, looking at the nice, clean world that we live in, or at least the nice, comfortable world that we live in, where we where we all just kind of go along and not, and there are things we don't talk about. I think he wants to explore the things we don't talk about. Yeah. Which brings us to Gone Girl. Uh, which is a film that is an, uh, a, f- a really fun thriller that has a nice mid film twist that immediately, it was so interesting. I was watching the film being very, you know, frustrated by it. I, sorry, not with the filmmaking, but with the, the, the situation of the characters mm-hmm. and just feeling like, you know, it's, it's that Hitchcock thing of like the possibility of like the wrong man and just, you know, oh, being yeah. accused of something and the laws getting closer and closer and feeling like he was framed and like, and just the stress of that. And then, so already it was kind of working within a specific genre and then it switches halfway through. And I'm, you and I can talk in a moment about if we are going to discuss what that switch is. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, there's a development halfway through. And at that moment in my mind, I immediately th- realized, Oh, it's pulp. we're watching pulp got it and it immediately contextualized everything i had seen before and everything that was going to happen after and regardless of how uh how sincerely and artistically he shot it in my mind is still like okay not unlike girl with a dragon tattoo this is closer to that than social network and that's okay but even within that he's exploring some fascinating ideas and somehow and so when i say something is pulp i don't mean to denigrate it yeah, it just helped me to realize exactly what he was doing and the story he was telling, and then even and then within that, further appreciate the themes that he was exploring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a film that just um, 
that was certainly an up I don't like to use the term roller coaster ride usually because people you know reserve that for like action movies and stuff but uh but this definitely felt like that for me emotionally and it got right on top of me and but it was still I don't know if I'd say the experience was fun it was engaging it's a very engaging film mm-hmm, yeah um and so I view it very positively. It did not make my top 10 of last year, but I believe it did make yours, right? I think so. I can't ever you remember what was on You never seem to remember, my, like, I the know. minute you send it in. And there was one that we were talking about that I was like, oh, that was one of my favorites. And you were like, that wasn't on your list. I was yeah. like, well, I'm... <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's I on guess, my list now. I guess I don't know what I think, even. Um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I think... Um, like I was saying before, it had that thing that the social network had that I liked, which is it, it feels very uh, it feels very clean and neat and ordered, but there's something kind of bubbling underneath that. Yeah. Um. And and I like that. And uh, you know what? I I kind of forgot that Ben Affleck was Ben Affleck, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um. I think there are a lot of movies where I, like Argo, he's Ben Affleck the whole time to me. Yeah. Um. So I think any, any, when you, when you have someone who's like movie star status that way, I think it's good when you kind of stop thinking about the actor and can think about the character. Yeah. And so I guess we'll, we'll really start to kind of delve into some of the technical elements of the film. Um, I think it looks gorgeous. I think it's, you know, technically, I mean, at this point, Fincher is at the top of his game. I mean, he knows the movie he wants to make and he will, whether it be, uh, you know, the musical choices setting the general tone and mood or the type of filter he's going to use on the camera or how wide the shot's going to be, how close it's going to be like you are always in very capable hands. And he always, you know, some would say that the way he directs is somewhat suffocating, mm-hmm. um, in a very, you know, Kubrickian kind of way, just like so precise that there's no room for, um, for spontaneity and that sort of thing. But at the same time, he tends to tell stories about people that are very precise one way or another. So I think it's perfectly okay. He's not making films about, uh, John Cassavetti's characters, you know, mm, yeah. and then sucking all the light, all the air out of the room. Um, yeah. So, you he's know, the same, uh, director of photography for a lot of his movies too. Yeah. And then for the last, you know, three movies he's made, he's had, uh, Atticus Ross and, uh, Trent Reznor, um, to do the music and, yeah. and, you know, I think he's a guy who, and this happens with a lot of, uh, auteur directors is they find the crew that's like, not only that will work well with them, but I think a crew that gets them. Yeah. Gets A, how they work and B, what they're trying to do. Yeah. Cause you want to work with people who are going to be able to most accurately and most efficiently create the vision that yeah. you're trying to create. And he has a team that knows how to do that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, and I do I do think that uh, that the the acting is great all around. Um, we'll talk about Rosamund Pike in a moment, who got, who tends to get the most uh, attention, including from the Academy. Um, yeah, as far as Ben Affleck goes, here's what I'll say: is uh, I think it's his best performance ever. Now I know that people hear that and say like, yeah, but he's not that good of an actor. He's great in this. I think he's genuinely great, and I think it's worth noting, as you said. Yeah, I forgot I was looking at Ben Affleck. Even though he's not doing an accent, he's not wearing weird costumes, Mm -hmm. he hasn't put on weight for the role or anything like that. He looks the same. He sounds the same. But I think, A, he's got, you know, better material to work with than he often does. Mm -hmm. Uh, And B, um, I think 
you he's working with a director who who wants very precise things from him and he seems you know and he as an actor is willing to go wherever fincher wants to go so i don't necessarily want to say like oh it's just the writing and fincher that makes him good no 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 he still is completely committed and there's a certain lack of vanity there. I mean, he's like his character at times looks really bad. Yeah. And he is willing to look as bad as his character looks in that film. And, you know, certainly when you're a movie star, there's always the possibility of like, oh, this might take some of the sheen off me. I don't want people looking at me this way. And it's actually one of the things that I've always liked about Matt Damon as an actor is if you look at stuff like The Departed and True Grit and The Informant, yeah. uh, not that The Informant was ever going to be a big movie, but The Departed certainly was and True mm-hmm. Grit was, uh, he's willing to look not – oh, and uh, Interstellar. Uh, oh, yeah. He's yeah. willing to look bad, but not the kind of bad that's fun, mm-hmm. but the kind of bad where he knows like, oh, the audience hates <laughs> me. And not like love to hate just no, hates, hates him yeah and while i don't think we ever hate ben affleck's character i mean he makes choices that are so bad that you just feel like oh yeah can Why i, root, you can I root for anybody in this story <laughs> yeah. um but i but that's but i think he understands one of the one of the things about this film and about the script is that it is about people that In many ways, it is about the concept of a narrative. Now, it could be a media narrative, but it also could be, I think, the narrative that we tell ourselves that there is such a thing as a perfect person Mm -hmm. and that people are like people can be good. And you can look at someone and think like, wow, what a good person. Mm -hmm. They're so much better than I am or they're so much better than everybody else or I'm such a good person or whatever it is. Um, And certainly there are people that are good and striving to be good. But again, not unlike the film itself and the way it's made, like this idea of oh, this guy's wife went missing, and isn't that terrible? Mm-hmm. But then underneath, well, he's been having an affair. He spent a lot of her money and that sort of thing. He is a flawed person. Yeah. And so that's that's a narrative, one that we will that we tend to accept is that our hero needs to be perfect. But then within the film, there's a narrative that like, look how horrible this guy is. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, is certainly exploited mm-hmm. um, uh, by other characters in the film to get what they want. And it's just that. So, you know, something that I that I've that we've talked about recently on Battleship Pretension is the idea that um, that film people tend to not really value acting that much because it's not like a directorial choice, even though it can be. Mm. Um, but as time go- goes on, you have to realize that certainly the look of the act of an actor can be just as much a part of a film's visual aesthetic as anything else. Yeah. And the performance they're giving can help set the tone just as much as anything else. Yeah. Uh, Cause I mean, we've all seen movies where an actor is not fitting with the tone of the film and absolutely. they stand out like a sore thumb and, and it can drag the whole movie down. Yeah. And this, this conversation actually came about because of uh, American hustle and Bradley Cooper's performance, which is a very manic type of thing and helps set the emotional tone of the film. Mm-hmm. And if you had him giving a much more reserved performance, um, the film would feel differently. Yeah. And so I think Ben Affleck's performance really, I think he understood what he needs to be, that there's more complexity to him, that he is worse than you think he is, but he's also better than you think he is because the time does come when you look at just how bad a person he is and like the characters 
or rather the the TV viewing audience in the film, there's this idea is like, oh, he was having an affair. Maybe he did kill his wife. Like the idea that the moment any kind of human frailty is introduced, that everything is possible. Mm-hmm. And while I certainly do think that anybody is capable of anything, just because somebody does one bad thing doesn't mean that they're capable of this other bad thing or yeah. that they did that other bad thing. Yeah. Of course, they're capable of it. So. Yeah, his performance is is wonderful. To go through a few others, uh, I think Ke- uh, Carrie Coon, who plays his um, sister, I think she's really great. She's primarily a stage actress that people hadn't really heard of. Yeah, I didn't know her at all before this. And I said before, like, is are you rooting for anybody in this film? I think you're rooting for her. You could see that. And then there's a detective character played yeah. by Kim Dickens who is able to cut through the cut cut through the narrative the various narratives that are, that are put forth in the film yeah. and get to the truth because that's her job. It's weird because she wavers a little bit between being kind of an audience surrogate because she's trying to figure out things the same way that we are, yeah. but also in being uh, from scene to scene kind of the antagonist. Uh, overall, I certainly yeah. wouldn't say she's that, but there are times when we're kind of rooting for Nick and she seems to be out to get him. So it's a funny, yeah. it's a funny, uh, it's a funny line for that character to have to play. Yeah. And I feel like she, she does a good job with it. Yeah. She's an actress that I've, that I've liked ever since first seeing her on, uh, Deadwood. And it's all, it's fun to see what she, how much she can do with a really strong character. Because yeah, she, not unlike Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, which you have not seen, I just realized, uh, you know, you can be the pursuer of the pro- of the protagonist without being Inspector Javert, yeah. you know, who does certainly have uh, uh, a personal stake in this thing, whereas right. she is simply trying to do her job and she's going where the evidence is leading her. Yeah. And so um, and I also really enjoy Patrick Fugit, who has a, a smaller role, but <laughs> he plays her partner. I enjoy him quite a bit. Um, Tyler Perry is a lot of fun. He's an actor who is. <laughs> I mean, of course, with the Medea films and stuff, uh, people can easily see him as over the top. But he's playing a character that is a bit over the top. Yeah. Um, and, very and much a Johnny playing, Cochran type. He's not playing it that over the top either. Yeah, not like. really. He's playing a character. You know, he's not over the top. He's not over the top. He simply has charisma. Yeah. And that's not. And I'm sure that's thing. like the person that he is in real life. Like, oh, he probably, has yeah. to be a person with a lot of charisma in real life. Yeah. And so... Um, so regardless of what I might think about, you know, the films that he makes as a director, and by the way, I haven't seen any of them. They might, they might be great. Though based on the critics' reviews that I've read, they are not. I've seen one. <coughs> Which one did you see? I saw Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Yeah. Well, how was it? It's all right. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. In that movie, the Medea character works because she's in it for 20% of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is perfect for that type of character. It's It's... For me, it's the same concept as a, a lot of uh, Saturday Night Live sketches stretched yeah. out into movies. It doesn't work in a movie format. You can't look at that character the whole time without it just being ridiculous and too much. But in small doses... Although I've also heard that it's a film that's basically a very serious melodrama. And so to have not merely the character of this crazy old woman, but played by a man, uh, is a little incongruous. It is a little strange that it's played by a man, yeah. It's, that is a weird choice. I remember Roger Ebert in his review, he gave it one star and he said that actually it's a very, that yes, it's melodramatic, but it's a very effective melodrama up until the Medea character shows up. And he says, not only does this film shoot itself in the foot with that character, uh, it blows its own foot off with a <laughs> shotgun. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking that was funny. But anyway, so. Oh, yeah. 
so he, you know, regardless of what I might think of him as a filmmaker, or what critics might think of him as a filmmaker, I think as an actor, it's it'll be interesting to see the way he's utilized because I think certainly this film got people thinking of him in a different way. Yeah, and in the Star Trek films too. Yeah, which I mean, he doesn't he's have much. To very do there. small part in that, but but with something like this, I think he could go on to have a really really good career as like a solid character actor and stuff like that. And I guess he was in that film. Is it Alex? Alex Cross, that's yeah. the one. Um, I was going to say Alex Ross, but I think he's the guy who re- who draws the uh, draws those super realistic uh, portraits of superheroes. But anyway, um, and so yeah, which I didn't see, but I heard wasn't very good. But I have no doubt that he's good in it. Like he does have a lot of on screen charisma mm-hmm. when allowed to have that. Now, so the acting almost uniformly good. Uh, then we get to Neil Patrick Harris, and I don't necessarily blame him, but he plays a character named Desi Collings. And again, this is a pulp film. His character, and so within that, I have to recognize that certain characters and certain types of performances are to be expected. Mm-hmm. His character as a very creepy, rich type of guy um, – who's a little obsessive and a little stalkery and all these kind of things. And is very much used to having things his way. Um, I think Neil Patrick Harris is doing his best, but his performance, I think actually is a bit over the top and a bit too much. And I think he is overacting, hmm. not merely having a lot of charisma because there's no reason that his character should, but, um, <clears throat> but that I think he is overplaying it. And I think some of it comes down to like, He's a stage actor and I don't think he's like, he's a stage actor, but then also, you know, yes, he was on a TV show, but it was a sitcom and he was the Kramer of that. Yeah. It was a big goofy TV show. So there, I I feel like he seems like he has some trouble coming back from something like that. Even watching him host the Oscars, it's kind of, yeah, he's got this persona to him now that has gotten him where he's gotten to. I think he has a hard time modulating his performance. And even though, again, there's a film that is in many ways, very stylized in the way it's shot. And, and again, there's a pulp quality to it, but somehow to me, he really sticks out. Hmm. Um, and I feel like any number of actors could have played that character a little, uh, much better and more convincingly. But I, I always got the sense that he was acting with a capital A, maybe all caps. Yeah. Um, am I, am I being too harsh on him? Do you think? Um, I didn't notice that as much in watching the film. I wasn't, as I was watching it, I wasn't thinking this character doesn't work, but looking back, I can kind of see that. Um, I can almost see them casting him more for look. Cause I feel like he has the look of that kind of character because yeah. he seems very clean cut and very fashionable, but a little yeah. weaselly. Yeah. Um, as most of the other characters or actors I can think of that might try and that they might try and put in that role either seem too skeezy or um, not not weak enough, maybe. Yeah. So the, the, with his look, I think there's a there's a very good balance of everything there. Yeah. Um, but I can feel a little bit of that stage thing, a little bit of that acting presence. Yeah, it's. I've used the term before, but an acting teacher of mine in college uh, used a term. Now, he used it with actors that I don't necessarily agree. Uh, Like, he said it with Meryl Streep, where he says, like, I can see the strings. I can see the actor making a choice Mm. rather than a character making a choice. And that's how I felt about uh, Neil Patrick Harris in this film. And so I think I like him earlier on in the film better. I think I do as well. 
Like when he just kind of when he just kind of shows up in, in the shadows. Places. Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked I think I liked him then, but I not as much further into the film. And you know, I'll say this, like it's never it's not ever never so much that I'm completely removed from the scene. It's more just like I'm going along with it and it's just like, okay, that that's a little big. And then I just keep going, you know. So but with the with the rest of the ensemble doing such great work, um, I feel like somebody who's a little bit off becomes more apparent to me in that moment. Mm-hmm. So um okay, so now comes the time when you and I discuss whether or not we <laughs> should talk about the twist. What do, you, um, what do you think? I feel like Film's we been have out a while. to. I feel like we have to since it's it's going to be hard to talk about a lot of these film, films without at least talking about the first twist because there are several. But I feel like we can't talk about about half of the movie unless yes. we go into that. Yeah, there's a there's a mid film twist. Um, yeah, and so I think we would definitely recommend. I think this movie is better if you don't know what's going to happen. I think so too. Um, so I would heavily recommend trying to uh, trying to see it first um, because there it starts off with a lot of questions, and yeah. I think the best experience of the film is wondering what the answer to the questions is. Yeah, unless of course you've read the book, when and in that sense, I figure you've probably already had that experience to a degree. Yeah. wondering about those same questions in the book. So yeah, if you have not, if you've gotten this far, I think we've been pretty spoiler free, but but we we've also really gone into the some details. But if you haven't seen the film, I would say you owe it to yourself as a viewer. It's not merely like oh, I'll yeah, I'll just keep listening. Whatever, a twist is a twist. I would say you owe it to yourself as a viewer to stop listening, go watch the movie and then come back because it is in the same way that like, you know, psycho or the usual suspects or any of those other, or Sixth sense, you know, any, any film that has a twist in it, you know, you can't get that back. If you, right. if a, if you've already seen it, but B, if you've, if someone has spoiled it for you. So the unless film you have is, short-term memory loss, in which case right. you're, you're in great shape, in which case I'd recommend the film memento, which also has a twist. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, so do that and, uh, we'll meet you right back here. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, certainly with, with some of the themes, um, it's important to talk about the twist. Yeah. But, I feel like we cannot talk about Rosamund Pike's character or performance without talking about the twist. Right, because without talking about that, you don't know, uh, you don't know even how she would be in the movie. As you're watching right. the movie, you might think, oh, she's only in flashback because they do some yeah. flashback. But then when she shows up, yeah. you're like, oh, now I know yeah. what's happening. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, and and you know, in the same way that when you when you look at sometimes the Oscars, it's not their fault, but at the same time, when she's nominated for lead and not supporting, oh, immediately yeah. you're like, I feel like she's probably going to be in this more, right? I I wasn't going to say that. I was going to mention the, uh, <laughs> the oh, clip, the clip that they used. Now that's an actual spoiler. <laughs> that was a terrible spoiler. Yeah, yeah. It was like, wasn't that one of the last scenes of the movie? I believe so. I think yeah. it's right before they're going to to do an interview. Yeah. And it's clear that it's after everything has happened. And yeah. like, so at this point, uh, like that trailer tells you that no, she wasn't murdered. Yeah. Uh, that she's up to no good, basically that she's manipulative. Like, 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's insane, and that's a thing they do from time to time. Uh, I remember, I think a year or two ago, they did something, and and I wish I remembered what it was, but I remember everybody that had seen the film already, and I don't even remember what movie it was. It, it was in regards to, but I remember everyone was like, "Oh, well." Gosh, that's a bummer. Yeah. I, I guess it's a good thing I saw the film. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's frustrating. But, uh, but as far as even just the nomination, again, it's, you know, if, and it turns out it is more of a lead performance, so it's fine to nominate. But like in the same way that like, you've seen The Crying Game, right? No. Do you know what the twist is? In yes. That? Okay. So there's a twist in The Crying Game, and it's not like a late movie twist. It's about midway through. Um, but by nominating somebody in supporting actor, <laughs> You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, although, you know what? Many years before, uh, the actress Linda Hunt was nominated, for be- nominated and won Best Supporting Actress for playing a male character. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't turn out that it was a woman the whole time. It's an no, actual it's ma- male character, which is such a fascinating idea. That's so weird. So, uh, anyway, um, so yeah, uh, her performance, Rosamund Pike, uh, nominated for Best, uh, Lead Actress, and she plays, <laughs> the the missing wife Amy, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot. There's so much going on with her performance now. As the, from this from the standpoint of an arc, mm-hmm. maybe she's not lead because I don't think she changes much. I think she's basically the same throughout. Um, he's mm-hmm. definitely a lead, um, yeah. but whatever. As far as screen time, I, mean, I don't even think in those terms anymore. Yeah, I, I don't really that, think it has anything to do with whether they have an arc or not. Because I think there's yeah. a lot of great characters that are clearly. The, I mean, Nightcrawler. That guy doesn't have an arc, really, yeah. and he's he's uh, yeah. clearly the lead of that movie. Yeah. Um. I mean, if I guess you know, in the same way as uh, you know, Daniel Plainview and in, in There Will Be Blood, you could make the argument that his arc is that he gets worse. Yeah. Or that he allows <laughs> himself to get worse, yeah. but that's less an arc and more just a. Uh, just a tilt downward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's, that's, that's just like an old thing from my, my, uh, my theater days and my writing mm-hmm. days that the lead has to have, has to be different at yeah. the end than at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but whatever, that doesn't matter here, uh, you know, at, at all. So, um, but yeah, her performance, it's more just, rather than arc, it's more just a series of reveals. Mm-hmm. It's just layer after layer being, yeah. being pulled off. Some of it is that, and it, it goes to that narrative. Some of it is a narrative that she has created. Some of it is a narrative that is being created by her husband or yeah. by the world around her. And what I think is so fascinating is the character, while so infuriating as you're watching her, because you're just like, oh, she's so manipulative. There is this sense of like she has had her whole – oh, and her parents, by the way. Her parents also create a narrative. Mm-hmm. She's been defined not not by her choice. So many other people are just putting these narratives on her and putting these definitions on her that she just feels like I need to get away. Yeah. And if this is the way it happens, maybe I'll make my own narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what she does. She's constantly so. doing that. She creates what uh, she wants the police to believe happened between her and Nick. Yeah. Uh, she create when when she runs away, she creates a narrative with the f- people that she runs into. Yeah. Uh, different narratives at different stages. When she comes back, she creates an idea of what uh, what she says happened. Yeah. Why why she is where she is. Uh, you know how they got there, and um, then near the end of the film, her she and Nick talk about creating another narrative and image of themselves and who they are now. And 
and there's something about, especially when you find out, and Scoop McNary's in the film for one scene, a really great scene, by the way. Uh, and he's a former boyfriend of hers and mm-hmm. he talks about the narrative that she created for him yeah. and basically ruined his, ruined life. his life. And in moments like that, that's when like sh- her, for lack of a better term, evil really comes out. And that's when I'm most frustrated because, uh, you know, you and I, so we're, you know, uh, you and I follow politics and of course politics is filled with narratives hmm. and, it always bothers me when when the person who best understands narratives and can best twist a narrative to their own ends when they win uh, office, even if they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But it's because they know best how to play the game. Now, of course, politics, there is an element of that and you need somebody who can do that. But like it just bothers me. It's like, how are so many people buying into this? Mm-hmm. And it just frustrates you. And in the same way, like she is so able to manipulate people through preconceived notions that they have yeah um that you know of course you're frust- like your frustration at her is ultimately a frustration at everybody else mm-hmm. for just buying into this and not digging further in and that's why you know the kim dickens character winds up being a lot more heroic than you mm-hmm. think because yeah. she's one of the few that doesn't buy into it yeah um and that she genuinely is following wherever the clues are leading mm-hmm. uh not merely like oh let's let's get this guy uh, who may, who, even if he didn't murder his wife, uh, I still want to get him. Like she has no agenda yeah. there. And so, um, and Rosamund Pike, she, you know, because the character is, has to change so much, uh, not necessarily as far as an arc, but she needs to be this way to, for this person, this way for another person. Uh, she has to play all these different notes depending on what scene she's in and her, and that must be very, very schizophrenic for the actress. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know who she even really is. Yeah. And maybe even, maybe part of the intention is that the character doesn't even really know who she is. Yeah. Because she has to bounce back and forth from who no. different people think she is to who she wants to be and try and keep, just trying to keep all those balls in the air is maybe what drives her crazy if crazy she is. And you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, there are a couple of moments where I think the actress makes a choice to even even though she's not saying anything, just in the way she's letting herself go in those moments, you get a sense that maybe not who she really is, but at least, you know, that what she's feeling is real. Yeah. The one that gets me is after she has she's gone and created a, a new life for herself. She's changed her appearance and she's going to gain some weight. So she's just eating a lot of crap, just Kit Kats and Doritos and stuff like that, which incidentally, you and I spent the whole weekend recently doing that at a bachelor party, (laughs) and I feel horrible (laughs) as a result, uh, emotionally and physically. Uh, So I don't know how she manages to do it, but there comes a moment when she's sitting by a a pool, and I believe she's eating a, a candy bar in that moment, and she is reveling in eating that candy bar. A, because up until that moment, she has... Oh, up until recently, she's like kept her figure because of what her husband expects and all that sort of thing. And in that moment, she's reveling in it because that is to her freedom. Mm. I'm now free to do what I want. And even though she's doing it with a purpose, she's changing her appearance so that she can further manipulate people and that sort of thing, or at least convince them she's somebody else. In that moment, the actress knows enough to show what she's feeling right now is real. Now, it could be real for any number of reasons, but in that moment, it's a genuine thing. And I feel like that goes to 
something else, you know, an acting teacher says, which is, yes, the audience is always watching you, but if there are no other characters around, you need to change your performance a little bit because nobody is ever in life, nobody is ever the same with someone else. It could be their wife, husband, it could be like their parents, somebody who knows them better than anyone else. It doesn't matter. Bring someone else in and your behavior will change. Yeah. And in that moment, there's no one else around. It's just her. And so she's able to let her, even as she's implementing her plan, she's able to let her guard down just for a moment. And I remember in that moment thinking like, that's a man, that's a good choice. And that's a really great performance. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think she was really great, uh, in the film. And, uh, and it's interesting because both she and Ben Affleck have a lot of heavy lifting to do, but in completely different ways. He grounds the film in reality, in an emotional reality that we can understand. The idea of this guy not being perfect and and having people level accusations at him and having to react in a way that we understand. Mm -hmm. But then she and her performance is sort of creating the general tone of the film like mm-hmm. the yeah. way like the way in which she's manipulative and the way that she revels in in that um is really kind of not merely the the way the plot develops but her performance really helps us to realize oh there's a lot of pulp going on here yeah so what i will say before we get into the some of the themes of the film i do want to address one thing and uh i myself uh thought this a lot of people have said the film is uh, misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember when I, you know, when I was driving home, I thought it might be misogynistic as well. That went away pretty quick the more I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly a lot of people have said that. I was listening to Never Not Funny and Matt Belknap, a guy who knows movies and a guy that I've, you know, talked to many times. Uh, he said he thought it was misogynistic. Um, before I jump into why I think it is not and and notably not, um, I wanted to get your take. Like, is that a thing that you ever thought or, uh, whether it be like you can see, it's like, oh, I feel like people might think of this or did you ever think it was that? I don't know if I think it is or not because I feel like that's a, that's a big charge to level and I feel like you have to kind of, uh, I think you have to think pretty seriously about whether it is or not because there's also, uh, there's the question of whether characters in the film think a certain way or the film itself thinks in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like that, there can be that contrast where there might be characters who are very misogynistic, misogynistic in the film, but that doesn't mean that is, uh, what the film thinks. Um, and I, I don't know because on the one hand, I think the film makes her look a lot worse than it makes him look. Oh, sure. I think they're both bad. And, uh, I think there is a pain that there is a real pain in her, not only from him and the things that he's done to her, but just what she's been through with her family. Yeah. Um, and you know, the image that she's had to kind of uphold for years and years. Yeah. So, but I feel like that doesn't weigh as heavily on us as the viewers as all of the bad things that we see her do. Right. And I think we can look at Ben Affleck's character and go like, yeah, he's kind of a bad guy, but a lot of people are bad. And, you yeah. know, like there's probably a way they could have worked this all out. Whereas a lot of what we see her doing, we say this is unexcusable. Yeah. So considering that the movie is a lot about marriage and about 
really a, a marriage gone wrong or maybe <laughs> the the whole concept of marriage is terrible mm-hmm. um when i think our the viewers see the the female character as demonstrably worse than the male character i i can see people feeling that way about it and i'm i'm curious because the book's written written by a woman yeah and so, the, and the script is adapted by her yeah so i i'd be interested to see how much how much different the book is or maybe what she has to say in in terms of that i i not that a woman can't be a misogynist but i feel right. like it's less likely yeah you know it's so interesting just because you're right like Amy comes off as worse than Nick and people see, and I think people have a problem with that because, well, he's a bad guy. Like, so why aren't we, you know, why aren't we mad at him? And I think it's because a, he hasn't murdered anybody. She has, Mm -hmm. he hasn't maliciously set somebody up to like go to jail and stuff like that. And so the fact is she's the villain. If there's a villain in this story, and I think because there's a pulp quality to it, I'm comfortable saying there is, it's her. Yeah. She's the bad guy. Now, while the film may be about marriage and that sort of thing, I and we'll talk more about that in a moment, um, you know, there are plenty of movies where one spouse is more right than the other. One is the hero and one is the villain. Now, while I wouldn't say he's a hero, I'll say protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um and there are countless movies where the husband is the villain and the wife is the protagonist or the hero or the heroine and nobody bats an eye. And I think, I think the fact that, and certainly there have been plenty of movies where, uh, that have a female villain, but I think because it's couched in a marriage and I think because he's a bad guy in some ways and, because this is a film all about narratives and, and how manipulative they can be, I think, and because the film suggests that, hey, you know what, some merit, some narratives, like the one that it's always the husband that killed his wife, never the wife who goes after her husband, uh, the narrative that, hey, you know what, sometimes a rape allegation might be a manipulative woman, as in her, as we see with her boyfriend, because it says, hey, maybe don't accept every narr- uh, narrative that's put out there. Mm-hmm. I think people are like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. I don't like this at all. You're saying that sometimes, sometimes a woman might lie about being raped. You're a misogynist. <laughs> you know, you're saying that that a woman can actually uh, manipulate the narrative that we all accept for her own gain. You're a misogynist. Like, it's like there are things that we just accept as true. And I don't mean to sound like I don't mean to like speak ill of women. And of course, I, I think I'm more inclined. If a woman says that she was raped, I think I'm more inclined than not to believe her. Mm. But but maybe I'm wrong in that because it is just somebody's word up until yeah. it's proven. Yeah. And so, like, um, I think it's a film that like it gets in. I think it just pokes at people in various ways. It poked at me in the sense of what marriage is or Mm -hmm. what it can be. Um, And so like, and I think maybe it poked others as saying like, yeah, a woman can be a villain as well and can be a very specific kind of villain. And by questioning the things that you hold so dear, uh, uh, beliefs that you hold so dear about women in general and what they're capable of, um, 
you feel like, oh, I don't like this at all. So what can I, what label can I put on the film that dismisses everything it is saying in this regard? Misogynist works really well um, because if it's making points about, you know, and maybe, you know, I don't know, I haven't read any, any interviews with uh, Gillian Flynn or anything like that, but maybe she was frustrated by the narrative. She was a, you know, maybe she, she was a, a, uh, I believe a TV and a movie critic. And I think maybe, so you're in a rare position to look at just one piece of pop culture after another that invariably shows women as the victim, men as the perpetrator. And she was saying like, yeah, somebody could really take advantage of this. Yeah. And what, what could happen in that sense? And, and so, and in that sense, then uh, another, besides just what it has to say about marriage, another subtext of the film becomes, uh, how do we as audiences, whether it be to the news or to, to, uh, fictional media, uh, why do we approach things the way that we approach them and why do we accept certain narratives over others? Yeah. And it's, and so like, there's so much going on on that front and I'm not even into the marriage stuff. Like mm-hmm. there's so much going on there. Uh, it's just, you know, and I, and I really applaud David Fincher for being willing to go this deep and, and talk about and basically make a movie that challenges so much of what we accept, even if we don't realize we've accepted it. Um, and being willing to turn off people as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it, that's a thing that I wanted to specifically talk about. And, you know, in a way, the film was nominated for one Oscar. And I think the film is probably one of the best movies of last year. I didn't necessarily, like, it didn't make my top ten, but I think probably because of just my own personal reactions to it. I don't think it means that means it's a bad film. Um, certainly one of the most notable films of last year. But when it came to, when it came time to be nominated for Oscars, nominated for Best Actress, and that was it. Not even nominated for Adapted Screenplay. Not even nominated for score, like kind of, or cinematography. The things that Fincher films are often nominated for. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the Academy itself watched this film and was made uncomfortable by it for one reason or another. And, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a, like I said, it is a film that you cannot watch casually. It will get a reaction out of you. The, Mm -hmm. The reaction could be rage at its audacity. Yeah. You could think it's completely wrong, but either way, it's not a film that you watch and be like, okay, that's, that was it. (laughs) I don't know anybody that has ever watched this movie and had that reaction. Yeah. They might react extremely positively or extremely negatively, um, but very seldom in the middle. Like, even I say, like, I say that, yes, the film is great, but I didn't, I didn't respond positively, but that's just because, I I just mean emotionally. Like, I think I responded exactly the way the film wanted me to respond emotionally. You're not supposed to walk out in a good mood. Exactly. (laughs) So, okay. So I wanted to, I definitely wanted to address that because I think the film does, and I think it's one of the brilliant things about it. So moving on, you did mention that the film is about marriage, and you wouldn't necessarily think that from, uh, a pulp film like in many ways there is a hitchcockian quality to this uh where you know there's two people that are spouses and and they would seem to know each other very well but then one you know perpetrates this thing and really Mm -hmm. gets the other one in hot water it's very you know i say pulp a lot but it's very hitchcockian in many ways um 
And so you would think like, okay, so it's only really using marriage as like the context for people that know each other very well, but maybe they don't, you know, and then that's it. But no, it really does. You have characters talking about what marriage is mm-hmm. and you have and, people, and that's the note it ends on. Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, the first line of the film is a bit more involved. The last, but involves this, it includes this. Uh, and the last line is a voiceover with Nick in regards to his wife saying, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? What have we done to each other? What will we do? And I feel like that is, in many ways, that is marriage. That is a thing that I think very often, you know, there, I've, I'm coming up on 10 years of marriage, which is insane for me to think. Um, 10 years of marriage and then we, we'd been dating and for two years and engaged for, for one basically. And so I've been with my wife in some capacity for, you know, 13 years. And, uh, it's just crazy to think because sometimes she and I, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's the same with, with you and your wife. Um, but there are times when I look at Jen and she has said the same thing with me that you realize like somehow you really look at their face and you remember, right. This is a whole other person. <laughs> like they've, she's so long been with me and uh, a constant in my life that in a way it feels like she's very much a part of me and she is mm-hmm. that we are like one unit. But there are sometimes moments when I, when I think like, Oh Yeah. You're a whole other person with your own history, your own philosophy, your own character flaws, your own character strengths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like maybe if I kept that in mind more often, then maybe I wouldn't be so devastated by my own marriage so frequently. And I, and I, and I'm, I was talking with my wife before this and, uh, you know, and it's one thing that I want to try and do is you know, one thing that we'll be talking about is how difficult marriage can be, but I don't want to talk about it as though it's just a slog and the last 10 years have been, the last (laughs) nine years out of 10 have been terrible or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just in the same way that that idea of like anything, anything worth doing is going to be very difficult. It's, I think it boils down to that, but it is difficult. It's because you're engaging with another person, uh, in, at the very least in an intimate way and both of you are being very vulnerable and it could be, you know, it could be a, a, a spouse or a friend or whatever. Like it's, it can be very difficult, especially when, Oh, this person is on my side. This person has agreed to be on my side. This person has vowed to be on my side, but now they're saying something hurtful. And so there's also this layer of this added layer f- for me, but I know other people have said it as well. Uh, there's almost a feeling of betrayal. They're like, no, 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 this person was supposed to be on my side. Doesn't that just mean that they just agree with everything I say? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a lot going on there. And then there have been multiple movies, and this is definitely one of them that explores the idea that, you know, when you go into marriage or certainly when you go into a relationship, you're going in with your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to present a positive front. Like, you know, you don't dress schlubby and stuff on your first date. Yeah. Nor do you bring up every issue you might have on your first date. Though I kind of did because <laughs> it was three weeks after my dad died. <laughs> and, uh, we wound up talking more about that than I would have preferred. Um, and, uh, 
But at the very least, Jen certainly knew what she was getting. Uh, I'll say so. that. So, um, so, you know, that's very much what this movie is about. And they talk about it a lot that both of them went, both Nick and Amy went into this, you know, she wanted to be like the cool wife, you know, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be the cool guy. And then you get married and this person is there with you all the time. So they're going to see, you know, the gross underbelly. They're going to, you know, yeah, you're going to see them when they're sick, for example. Yeah. Nobody's at their best when they're sick. Like if this person's blowing their nose all the time or throwing <laughs> up or whatever. And it's yeah. like, this is not uh, cool. This yeah. is not the cool person I thought I was marrying. It's all just part of the natural progression from, uh, the ideal into the reality and the reality is always much harder. Yeah. And it's, and so in a way I think some people, and I think that this film kind of, maybe the film doesn't make the argument, but certainly the character does that like somehow that means that the first part was a lie that you were lying to each other saying, Mm -hmm. this is who I am. Mm -hmm. But anybody with any kind of common sense, hopefully will go into a relationship recognizing like, yes, yes, this is part of who they are. But, but there's, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. Right. Because in that same way, you have to recognize that you are also putting your best foot forward. Right. But there's more underneath that you'd prefer this person not know, at least not right now. Yeah. Um, and so it's just uh, – and, you know, I mean people talk about the divorce rate being so high and, and that sort of thing. And, and certainly people have talked about the way marriage is depicted in pop culture and the idea that, Oh, these people, I, Jen and I last night went and saw Cinderella, which actually is a gorgeous film. Uh, production design is amazing. Costume design is great. It's shot really well. And it's really, it's just a live action version of the, of the, the fairy tale, which I actually appreciate. I like that they didn't layer on all these modern things that it's, you know what you're getting. And so there's the idea of happily ever after, not a bad idea. And if you look at it in the right context, you understand what happily means. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what it often seems to mean is they will never fight. They <laughs> will never disagree. They are now of one mind. And that is the definition of happiness. But of course, you and I know that that is not the case because mm-hmm. as i mentioned earlier it's a whole other person mm-hmm. and when people realize that it takes work and that sometimes you can get bored with this person sometimes they can get bored with you sometimes you hit a season where you guys are just not on the same page probably because of external circumstances there's a line in the film that i like in which amy says want to test your marriage for weak spots add one recession subtract two jobs it's surprisingly effective mm-hmm. and so it could be money troubles. It could be career troubles. It could be, you know, I, I've heard that along with money, the death of a child will cause couples to divorce mm-hmm. at a time when obviously they should be coming more together. In that moment, there's such tremendous loss that maybe there's some blame going on. Maybe that, yeah. who knows? But adversity suddenly makes you realize like, oh, I was told this was going to be great. And now this person's not supporting me the way I think they should. And, and so, you know what? I, I think I'm out of here. I think I, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and seek happily ever after. Um, and so I think that I think if you look at Amy and even Nick, frankly, you see two people who had an idea of what this was going to be. And then it turned out to not be that. And 
he went and had an affair as a result, and then she went completely insane. And you see, you see that, by the way, she was always kind of insane, as evidenced from, like, her treatment of an, that older boyfriend and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I feel like one of the, the, in many ways, I feel like the film is a cautionary tale <laughs> um, for anybody getting married. I almost wonder, like, my wife and I are involved in uh, the pre-marriage ministry at our church, so we counsel engaged couples. I almost feel like I should start saying, like, hey, uh, go watch uh, <laughs> Gone Girl. I don't um, know about that. Yeah, I know. That might not be the best. Yeah. But um, but it certainly does give you the idea that, that uh, marriage, at the very least, takes more work than it would appear. Yeah. And I, I think you might be able to say, to go as far as to say that the film kind of doesn't have a very positive view on marriage as a whole. Um, uh, and there are a lot of people who, who, uh, a lot of more quote unquote progressive people who might say that marriage is kind of an outdated construct. Yeah. Um, and, uh, then this, this movie in the book might be kind of trying to make that point because here's two people whose lives would be better if they weren't tied to each other the way that they were as, as far as the film would like us to think. And, you know, actually, uh, David, my other co-host, he read the book. Mm-hmm. And he said that the end of the book is a bit more, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'd say marriage positive, but ends on a slightly different note because now these two are tied to each other yeah, and they've got a kid. So that makes them tied even closer together. Um, but it apparently ends with uh, Nick's narration saying that, you know, they have to basically make a go of it. They are stuck with each other. So, and they have to give the impression that they're a happy couple. And so there are times when they'll go out to a movie. They'll go out to, you know, a park or something like that. They'll do the things that a couple is supposed to do. And he says that there are times when he'll forget how, what his wife did to him and, mm-hmm. and how bad things can be and that sort of thing. And he says, he's like, I think something like uh, one of the last lines of the book, maybe the last line is something like, my wife is... A complete psychopath, uh, but is also pretty cool sometimes. Hmm. And to me, that is, I'm not sure if I'd say that's hopeful, but it's a little bit more, it's a little bit closer yeah. to optimistic than it, the film is. It's a little more about having to make the best out of a difficult situation yeah. rather than being forever trapped in a torturous world. Yeah. And so... And in the film, I think it's implied that the one thing that keeps Nick happy is his is his uh, child, and that like yes, yes, I hate my wife and she's a monster, but at least I've got my child. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I and and I, I'm sure that there are a number of marriages that are like that. Um, and so, but yeah, from what it sounds like, the book at least acknowledges that what so many what so many people and certainly in the in the christian community and i'm not saying that divorce doesn't exist in the christian community it certainly does but um but you know if you take it seriously as you know till death do us part sometimes that can seem if you want to look at it a certain way when things are bad when you're in a tough season it's easy to look at that as a life sentence like it's like oh Boy, I hope I hope one of us has an affair so that we can get divorced, <laughs> uh, which is, of course, a terrible thing to say, but or, or think. And I don't think I ever have. But um, it's just this feeling of like, wow, I'm I'm stuck with this person. Mm-hmm. And. 
and I don't know how I can make the best of it. But ultimately what marriage is, is recognizing I'm with this person through thick and thin and we can, and there's a way to make that work yeah. because, you know, I could focus only on my wife's flaws because they're there. I could right. only focus on that or I could recognize that she's also tremendously cool in some ways and yeah. she's remarkably accepting of my flaws. Yeah, you always have to have the choice to look, look at either the negatives or the positives yeah. or some balance in between. And I think that's where there, a lot of the responsibility comes in and how yeah. people approach marriages. And so uh, I do want to bring up uh, the companion film right now, which is another film that is remarkably, maybe more cynical about anything <laughs> maybe so. than Gone Girl. And that is Mike Nichols' Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which came out in 1966, based on the play by Edward Albee, starring uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel, Sandy Dennis, and that is it. I think there's a waiter somewhere. Um or, or a bartender, perhaps, but it is based yeah. on a play with four characters, and it feels very much like that. Yeah. Um, as clean as uh, Gone Girl is, that is as cluttered as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf <laughs> is. Um, and I think it's a beautiful film uh, visually because it was shot. It's shot in black and white, and this and it's this older. Co- it takes place mostly in the house of an older couple that have just <clears throat> that. You know, whose lives are just filled with clutter, both and baggage, both emotional and physical. And that's a great like the two of them cast as those as yeah. those two is perfect for the time period. Cause oh, it's yeah. like they're they're the ones that everyone knows used to be kind of yeah you know Hollywood idols, and now yeah. have been through a lot, and nobody really wants yeah. to be like them. Yeah, in a way, it's not unlike a casting Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in Revolutionary exactly, Road. Yeah, same type because. Of thing. Not that they were ever romantically involved in in real life, but their story is the love story of the era. Yeah, and f- to cast them as like, oh, this is what it would look like if Jack hadn't died in Titanic. Um, and some people got really angry at that, <laughs> the notion of that. Um, but uh, but yeah, so who's afraid? Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It won several Oscars that year. It won Best Actress for Elizabeth Taylor, Supporting Actress for Sandy Dennis, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design. It was nominated for Picture, Actor, Supporting Actor, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Sound, Editing, and Score. That's a lot. That is a lot. Um, I believe it is... I mean, except for, you know, Give Him Hell Harry, which I think is a uh, travesty of a nomination because it was just a filmed play, quite literally, not an adapted play like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there's one of the only films, maybe the only film in which the entire cast is nominated. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, and it's a marvelous film. Um, it is a film that will, it is very taxing emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um Years ago, there was a uh, an adaptation on Broadway with, I believe, Kathleen Turner and Bill Irwin. And uh, you know who Bill Irwin is, right? The Stingray guy, right? What was that? I don't know what that means. Oh, got it. Um, he was in uh, Rachel Getting Married. He was the father. Oh, yes, yeah. Okay. And he's also the voice of Tars in uh, Interstellar. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, known primarily in culture as being like a tremendous physical comedian who's able to like emulate the work of Buster Keaton. And yet you cast it, you know, casting him as a voice. Yeah. And then, uh, and I think he's wonderful in Rachel getting married, but I always thought Mm -hmm. that would be a really interesting production to see. But anyway, um, so it's all about this, 
this older couple, a uh, uh, college professor and his wife, uh, getting together for a nice, quote unquote, pleasant evening with a younger college professor and his wife. And as and so you get these two different these two married couples in very different stages of their lives. And it's mostly about uh, George and Martha. That's uh, Burton and Taylor. Um, you know, that wonderful comedy team, Burton and Taylor. Burton and Taylor. Um, and just, and over the course of the evening, as the, as everybody just gets more and more drunk, you just see how, ah, I'm reluctant to say it, how toxic the relationship of George and Martha is. You could say how destructive they we are. We could say destructive, but the weird thing is, there seems to be a genuine affection underneath, or at least an understanding that we are in it until the end. Yeah. You may be a complete psychopath, and so might I, but you're my psychopath. You know, it's yeah. like there's a line that Martha says, and when she says, George, who is out there somewhere in the dark, who is good to me, whom I revile, who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them, who can make me happy, and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. George and Martha, sad, sad, sad. Oh, I should say that Elizabeth Taylor's character is kind of insane <laughs> in many ways, and so the, her lines are a little disjointed. But anyway, she says, Whom I will not forgive for having come to rest, for having seen me and having said, Yes, this will do. Like, the, if you look at that line, there's a lot of self-loathing, there's a lot of frustration with the other person, but there's also an understanding that this person is never going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And and seems committed to making me happy, and and I will say I myself am somebody who I, in my friendships and my relation at my my marriage I tend to test people's love and commitment. I uh, look. I'm not proud of this, but this is a thing that I do that I will sometimes push people because if they keep coming back, then clearly then clearly what they think is real, what they mm-hmm. believe is real. Their their love for me is real. Mm-hmm. And it is a... Now, I often do this without realizing it, and only after the fact do I realize, oh, okay, that's what that was. <laughs> that was a horrible test. Um, and, uh, and I think that's something that the character of Martha does and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And, um, man, that's a great movie. Just in talking about it, I just <laughs> want to watch it again. And then yeah. again, not see it for about 18 months. So, um, so yeah, it's... Uh, so I think that's a film that even has, and there's a little twist at the end of that film as well, where mm-hmm. it turns out that these characters aren't, haven't been completely honest with the younger couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that moment, actually, you see tremendous heartbreak, but also tremendous tenderness on the part yeah. of the older couple. Yeah, because they're, they're together in that uh, tragedy that they go into. Yeah. And, and it's something so, that only they can share, and they, they realize that. And it's just... And so you look at these these films together, and if you if you watch these movies, and let's throw Revolutionary Road in there as well, and maybe John Cassavetes' faces, um, you're going to certainly never want to get married. And if you are married, you're going to be like, I well, obviously, I want a divorce. I'm I'm pretty sure that if you buy Gone Girl on Blu-ray, it comes with a divorce contract in the packaging. Um, but uh, a card for a divorce lawyer. <laughs> just send it in. <laughs> Just mail in this and um, finalize your divorce. Yeah. This with uh, two box tops <laughs> from a, from General Mills cereal. Um, so they probably don't do that anymore, right? The box top box thing. Tops, I don't know. 
Probably not because they do everything online now. Yeah, they would be it. like enter this code at generalmills.com. That's or probably whatever. it. Um, so uh, you look at these movies, and it's just and certainly they are about like how emotionally taxing marriage can be and relationships in general can be, um, and they're really about how tempting and how easy it is to give up to say this is too hard. I cannot deal with this. There's a line that Martha says where she says, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to try to get through to you anymore. There was a second back there. Yeah, there was a second, just a second when I could have gotten through to you when maybe we could have cut through all this, this crap, but it's past and I'm not going to try. So that's the thing is, and I feel like a lot of, I feel like culture often says that if somebody, first off, like if anything is remarkably hard, then maybe you weren't meant to do it. Maybe you shouldn't do it. Um, you know, that sort of, I know that to bring up yet another, uh, fault of mine, I know that, uh, certainly when I was younger, but I think it probably sticks around this idea that if I'm, if I'm meant to do something, I'll be naturally good at it. Not perfect, but I'll be naturally good. So I have something to hang my hat on as I continue to try to make myself better at it. But if I'm not inherent, if I don't, have a natural ability to do it, then I should just not do it. Incidentally, that's probably why I'm a little physically out of shape because I am not really good at anything physical. And so I'm just like, oh, because to me, it's, you know, it's uh, every time I do it, it's a reminder of how bad I am at it and that I should just quit. Um, and so in that same way, I do feel like certainly in modern culture, I think there's an emphasis of like very much on the self and uh, if somebody is getting in your way of of realizing what you want, or re- if someone's ever if someone's making you unhappy, then you know what you got to get away from them. I think I can't think of a better example than "Eat, Pray, Love," which is a nice mm, yeah. go to for us um, of how narcissistic and how self focused culture is, because that is a that is a book and a film that is viewed as very positive and very encouraging and very enabling and all of these things. But it's all, it ultimately says like, yeah, if things get tough. Uh, yeah, get out of there. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about like obviously physical abuse or infidelity or maybe even a fair amount of verbal abuse. Um, obviously that's rough and that's a thing you should get out of. That's, you know, uh, that's, that's different, but <clears throat> I'm not, ta- but like arguments and, and even bad arguments. I've had my share of bad arguments, arguments that I never, never thought that I would have had otherwise. Mm. Uh, like before I got married, I never would. Like if you'd told me when I was a kid that I would be having these types of arguments, uh, I would have been like, oh, so that's r- like that's the argument right before both people simultaneously say, let's get divorced. Um, yeah. But we're still together. That, you know, that was years ago and we're still together, which is insane. <laughs> um it's not actually insane, but, uh, but yeah. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a weird thing to realize, um, that as you marry somebody and you get to know them, of course, you're going to, you're going to see them at their worst and they're going to see you at your worst. Um, and it will be so counterintuitive to stick around after that because it's going to get so much harder. Um, but, you know, at this point, I've read enough marriage books and uh, Christian, of course, um, that 
you come to realize that I've come to embrace the philosophy uh, that our job as spouses right now. Okay. So it's me and Josh right now. So I say our job as husbands is to love our wives and to show them love. They might not necessarily feel loved Mm -hmm. in that moment. And our attempt at showing love will probably be imperfect and will, and, and, and will sometimes be tainted with our own selfishness and our own desire to get what we want. And this is like, yes, yes, I'll show, it's like, I'll show her love. And then that she'll show me love. And, and you know, like <laughs> the idea what of, I want. then like the idea of saying, I love you solely so that you can hear it back. Yeah. Um, not that it's even a lie. Of course you, you do love that person, but right. in that moment, you're not saying it as a, it as doesn't an come out of that. Love, right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, like I, I do believe that, you know, because as Christians, we are supposed to emulate Christ and he's somebody who could, whether all, I guess all of the abuse, um, but still was selfless and never insisted on, on his own way because somebody who willingly goes to the, the cross and martyrdom for something they didn't do. Um, and again, like he didn't want to do it, you know, is, uh, like take this, you know, take this cup from me. Um, mm-hmm. he didn't want to do it, but he did do it. And so, you know, if you look at that and apply it to your own life and your own relationships and your own marriage, it's, yeah, it's like, we are in a bad place right now and I feel like my spouse is not supporting me. But if Jesus could die to certainly die for us, then I can die to my own desires right now and serve this other person. And even as I say it, I know that sounds discouraging. Hmm. It sounds like you'll never get what you want. But if you have, if you actually have two spouses who are both trying to emulate Christ, you'll both be taken care. You'll, you'll be taken care of. Maybe not all the time, maybe not, certainly not complete, not maybe certainly not all the time and certainly not completely because there'll be times when, as I've said, you are not on the same page and you just can't just ships passing in the night. You just cannot seem to to do that because that ideal that we present when we first are involved with, with yeah. uh, somebody romantically is like we said, not never the reality. Yeah. And so, um, and then the, something I wasn't anticipating getting in. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention it a little bit right now. And, and that's, that's the thing is that's why we have, you know, the, not why we have the love of God, but we have to remind ourselves that we have the love of God. And so if we are, if we're, if we are seeking after our spouse solely for like approval and for love that won't go away, Sometimes, even if the love doesn't go away, the expression of that love might not be there every time you want it. And mm-hmm. so it's very easy to then feel that you are unloved or unlovable. Yeah. Um, and so you need to remind yourself in that moment that, no, no, this person is merely a flawed human being who, for whatever reason at the moment, is unable to give me what I need. Um, but God is still there to remind me that I am loved, regardless of if this person is saying it or not. Um, and it, and certainly it can be rough when the person who has pledged to love you is not showing that at the moment, Mm -hmm. it can be very rough. And I feel like, you know, 
after a while you just feel very dry and very empty because nobody, because that person's not poured themselves into you. But, um, but I think in those moments for me, it's always helpful to look at the times when, when my wife has needed love from me and I have had nothing to give or I haven't had the time to give it or whatever and realize. And I think when you look at that, you'll wind up cutting that person a lot more slack than you would have otherwise. It gives you some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you look at, uh, you know, Nick and Amy, they're both very aware of what the other person can give to them early on in their Mm -hmm. relationship. But then when it comes time for that other person to take, uh, I think they're like, oh, wait, no one said that, said anything about that. Well, the the relationship is always based on what they can get from the other person. And so at first it's like what they are getting. It's the, the, it's positive because they're enjoying what they are getting. But then when later on, uh, later on, it becomes the problem is they're not getting what they feel like they should be getting. And then that's where it ends up falling apart. And, you know, it's and so there's a line here from Amy where she says, Nick Dunn took my pride and my dignity and my hope and my money. He took and took from me until I no longer existed now. And then she says, that's murder. Um, it's very easy to feel that way sometimes in marriage um, when you feel like just for whatever reason, you know, I know that for you know, like my wife runs her own business and it requires a lot of her time. And so if that happens for an extended period of time, now, if I'm understanding, I realize, well, she has a business to run and there are times of the year that that will require more of her. Yeah. And for me to then say, and for me to say, yes, yes, but what about me? Yeah, it's, it's easy to rationalize yourself as the yeah. victim, which is what Amy is doing here yeah. and does for most of the film. Yeah. And it's just, uh, you know, so I need to look at, at Jen's life and that, and pr- basically you need to provide context. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the flip side is that sometimes, you know, for myself, uh, I might have a lot of stuff going or I, you know, I'm prone to depression and stuff. So like I might have seasons when I'm just in rough rough shape and you know and then jen looks at that and says like okay i need to he he's not in a position to give me much right now Mm -hmm. and so in both cases like for a moment like for a short time i'm going to if the impression is like oh i'll need to take care of myself Mm -hmm. which sounds so lonely in a marriage yeah but what that and and but another way of saying is like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to turn to God and then often other people in my life. Yeah. Um, for these things. Yeah. Um, but it's primarily just healthy, God. It's just as unhealthy to, uh, even if you're able to consistently serve each other, it's, it's just as unhealthy to be, uh, to stay insulated in that relationship. That's yeah. not really the model for marriage that we have anyways, to just yeah. cloister yourself away with your spouse and, you know, figure out that life. Yeah. And it's just, and it puts too much on that other person. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like, as I was saying earlier, like our job is to is to love our spouses, not to make them feel loved because we can't control that, right. but to do everything we can to love our spouse. But I feel like in culture, it, the idea is inversed and it's our spouse's job is to love us. Mm-hmm. Now that is technically true if, because, but only from their point of view. Right. And you, can, and you certainly view. can't control that. Yeah. You know, 
I can't, I can't point at Jen and say, you're not doing your job. Although, I mean, obviously it's important to speak the truth to your spouse, but I feel like when you're being accusatory, I think you need to stop for a moment. And again, consider context, consider any, you know, your own selfishness and that sort of thing. Um, but the one thing you can control is your actions and your, maybe not even your immediate response. I don't think you can control that, but you can control how that response manifests itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and I realize that this sounds very troubling and like a lot of work and it is a lot of work. You know, I mean, any, like I say, anything that is worth doing is probably a lot of work, whether it's professional success or, you know, or having, or like having a good body, you know, some people naturally are more athletic, but that doesn't mean that they're like ripped. That requires a lot of time and effort at the gym. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, if you're going to have a marriage that is healthy, then let's, you know, let's stick with the body analogy because it's not merely work at the gym, but it is also eating right and sacrificing the things that you might want to eat all the time. Yeah. And so if you're going to have a healthy marriage, then it requires work, like putting in time and effort, but also it requires a lot of sacrifice of what you want, not a complete sacrifice of what you want. And some, and it might mean changing the definition of what you want, but just sacrifice, not like it doesn't mean you're never going to eat a cookie. It does mean you're not going to eat cookies for every meal. Right. You know, in, in both, uh, both marriage and the body image thing, the effort and sacrifice are to the, the two most important things. They kind of are held in a balance with each other. And, you know, and the thing is, and so it's very easy in the moment when you're not eating the thing you want to continue that analogy, when you're not eating the thing you want or when you're like exhausted and drenched in sweat at the gym and being like, I, you know, I go to the gym and I do the elliptical and within, I'm going to say 45 seconds, I'm bored out of my mind (laughs) because I hate cardio. It's so horrible. I basically have to just, be like, okay, are there any shows on Hulu I need to watch? Because I need to distract myself from how unspeakably bored I am. But whatever, that's neither here nor there. Um, so in those moments, it's easy to only see the sacrifice and only see the work. But when you do it long enough, you act. there is a benefit to it, and you will see that benefit. If you put work into your marriage, if you try your best to love that person and sacrifice whatever, you know – at the very least sacrifice yourself, which is my happiness. My perpetual happiness is the most important thing. You sacrifice that idea. You're in already, you're, you're, you're a good portion of the way there, Yeah. but it will reap rewards Mm. that, you know, your marriage will be healthier and healthy doesn't mean perfect because there are no perfect people, but it will be healthier. You will actually see that reward. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, as I've said before, I, I, I tend to, I think because it's always, it's always easier to talk about why something doesn't work as opposed to why something does. Mm -hmm. For me, it's infinitely easier to write a negative review of a movie than a positive one. Yeah. Um, and in that same way, I think it's, it's, it's easier to talk about why marriage is hard as opposed to why it is great. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because Wyatt is great. Like there are moments when like I look at my wife and I just feel good. Would you like me to elaborate? Sorry, I can't. (laughs) I just feel good. I feel complete. I feel whole. I feel loved. And, you know, it's just, but I want it, but you know what, right now I do want to try and go into it a little bit because it, because I need to, because after 10 years, it's important for me to remind myself and really try to put into words what I'm feeling. Because when you look back to go back to Gone Girl, it's this idea of like, well, sure. In the first, in the first part of a relationship or a marriage or whatever, um, then what's positive is very clear to you. And then that goes away. Well, it doesn't actually go away. It merely changes because the more you get to know somebody, yes, the negative parts of them and of you will come to the forefront, but so, but the deeper positive parts will also come to the forefront because as it turns out, when that other person sees the, the, the more negative parts of you, then they are in a position to love you despite that and love you through that, which they were never in. Uh, mm-hmm. in the early uh, parts of the marriage or the relationship because they weren't seeing it. Mm-hmm. And so that to me is astounding. I've told the story on here before and I won't go into it that like, that like, uh, you know, I yelled very angrily at some kids in a theater <laughs> and, and Jen was at first a little embarrassed as she should have been. <laughs> um, but afterwards she saw how ashamed I was and she just, and so we were back home and she hugged me and like, just like held me very close. And I asked for her forgiveness and all that sort of thing. And in that moment, like it would have been very easy for her to be like, okay, we're done for the day. I'm so embarrassed and I'm so uncomfortable by this display of yours that, that we're done at least for the day, but we weren't even done for the hour. Mm. Like, she, you know, she lo- like that to me is what marriage is, is seeing just how low a person can get and and not even necessarily make the attempt to bring them up because that can that certainly in that moment, it would have been futile. But at the very least being like, OK, I see how dig how deep you can dig yourself. I will join you there mm-hmm. so that at the very least you're not alone. And. That to me, this feeling of not being alone. Um, and sometimes I do feel like that. And that's, and that's, you know, when I have to turn to God and I'm not super effective at it. Uh, I still put a lot of pressure on people to <laughs> be there with me. But, uh, that is, you know, that is where you can find God. And so, um, so I do want to read a couple of, of, uh, verses. So this is Ephesians five twenty two through twenty three. Now these some of these verses are of course very uh, controversial. The controversy is not what I want to get into right now. Uh, Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, a lot of people hear that and all they hear is like, oh, submissive wives and that sort of thing. Uh, there's definitely a conversation to be had about that. And the conversation has been had many times online. Go and look at it. If you are offended <laughs> by that, I get it. 
I understand. Look it up online. You'll find a lot of a lot of resources. Yeah, there. there are lots of places where you can talk about that with lots yeah. of different people. The one thing people like people have a problem with that. What they don't have a problem with is the idea of husbands uh, loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Now, the obvious thing is, what did Christ do for the church? Well, he died. Okay, that's fine. So uh, you and I need to die for our wives. I think that you know, in a way, it's like yeah, no problem because it's not going to have to happen. Mm. What it also means is taking the sins of the church on himself Mm -hmm. and taking responsibility for something that is not his responsibility. Yeah. And so to me, that means like if things, if things are bad with me and Jen, there are, if we just had an argument and we, she's in one room, I'm in another, it means that I need to apologize first or at least, and I won't want to. But it means I need to work even harder than she does to see the role that I played in that argument. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that she never apologizes and sometimes right. she'll beat me to it. Yeah. But it means that like there within you, there's this stubbornness. There's this desire. It's like I'm going to dig in my heels because screw her. I'm right. And even if I was more right in the argument than she was, and I never think it's a zero sum game, but like even if I'm more right – I have a responsibility to take the res- I have a responsibility to take responsibility and to be the leader of this and say I'm sorry. Yeah. Um and also I have a responsibility to actually genuinely understand what I am sorry for <laughs> right. so I'm not just lying. Um <laughs> but anyway, so that's the thing. If you look at this, yes, you can get you can get wrapped up in in the specifics and words like submission, but more than anything, this is about how each that a husband and a wife both have a responsibility to the other person to sacrifice themselves and their selfishness for the other person. Mm-hmm. More than anything, I feel like that's what it is about. Again, if you have issues with the specific wording, go online. You can find entire sermons that deal with this. Moving on. Uh, if you've ever been to any wedding ever, <laughs> you've heard this next passage. Although I actually included more of it than is usually there. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. That last part is something that is seldom included at weddings and something I wanted to include here because I do like the idea that that there are so many things that we value often in a relationship like, oh, it's important that I be super smart. It's important that, you know, all these things. But in the end, what ultimately matters is love and self-sacrifice for the other person. Mm. Like. All these other things might go away, but this is the thing that will keep you guys together. Now, when you look at this list of all the things that love is or is not, you look at that and think, uh, I can't do all of that. Of course you can't, um, which is why the the very last thing is uh, endures all things. Mm. Endurance is the idea of continuing to go even though you know you can't make it. Um, and then there's the idea of praying to God for strength and where forgiveness comes in and you're realizing your own frailty and that sort of thing. And so it doesn't, you know, there's no rule that because you can't do these things that you shouldn't try to do them. Um, and so, you know, so you look at movies like Gone Girl 
you look at movies like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and you see people that there is still an affection there and a desire mm-hmm. for this oneness yeah. and this closeness. But often our selfishness gets in the way, our expectations get in the way, our preconceived notions get in the way of serving one another. Um, and that is one of the things I specifically love about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is that there is a tenderness there occasionally and you see little flickers of affection and genuine love and acceptance of the other person. But, and if these people could just get out of their own way, then it could be a really loving marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I want to, I, I kind of want to end there. Um, you know, it's, we've talked about a lot of stuff, you know, and it sounds like I'm just giving a lot of marriage advice and I guess I am, but obviously I'm giving this advice just as much to you, Josh, and to me mm. as anybody else, because this is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and as is often the case, like, yes, we're talking about marriage, but it could be applied to anything else, any other relationship, um, where you can insist on getting what you want and, you know, and if you're not, and if you're not getting what you want or if you're not getting what you need, then I think you then have a responsibility to at least communicate that, um, so that a conversation can come from it. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize your own, uh, your own desires and your own faults in that. And so, um, but ultimately underneath all of this, uh, God can provide what other people cannot and mm-hmm. where we are at our best is when we are most trying to emulate Christ in our self-sacrifice and our unconditional love for the other person. So, you know, there's a lot going on here and I could see people hearing this and feeling kind of maybe even a little discouraged that this is not the marriage they have. Uh, I should say that nobody ever has this marriage completely. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a goal to strive for and, and, uh, maybe never an actual reality. And there's something, you know, there's an argument to be be made for it's never too late. You, if you're listening to this right now and you feel like, oh, that's not the marriage I have, you can start right now. Yeah. You can, you can pray to God for humility on your own part. You can pray to God for uh, a heart of self-sacrifice and then immediately start and, and you can pray that God brings to your mind a way that you can bless and love the person you are married to. You can start right now. Yeah. And God always wants to change us for the better. And there's many examples of how he's done that. uh, I'm sure in people's lives that you've known, but also throughout the Bible. Absolutely. So, uh, so that's the thing. That's why I say Gone Girl is a cautionary tale. I could look at it and see, and for a while I did, and just see that like marriage is hopeless. There's no point to it. It's all over. Or I could say, yeah, that's how bad it can be. And sometimes for me, that's how bad it has been. But it's never, there is never, it's never hopeless. And I think that's, you know, you can always, you can always change course. Uh, it might be hard. You like, you might be in patterns that are very hard uh, to break. Might you know, engage in things that are very hard to turn back from. But you can. It takes work and sacrifice, but you will see. You will reap the benefit from that. So, I think that is where we will leave it. Uh, hopefully, everybody enjoyed this episode. Um, 
If you have any comments or questions, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com or Josh, Josh, at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow, you can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. You can also like us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter. Uh, I think that is about it. Thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. We'll get you next time. Bye.